Holy Spirit, would you come and be here? I pray that you would rest on each of us. I pray, Father, that we would feel your glory. We would feel the weighty presence of the risen Lord. I pray that you'd wrap your arms around us in the natural, that we would know you are with us. I pray that we would experience you now. I pray that we would hear your voice, that we'd hear your story, that we would learn and apply and do, and that it would all be for your glory. So would you be with us now in Jesus' name? Amen. Oh, well, we are continuing our, our series examining the glory of God through the presentation of, of John in the gospel that he, that he writes. Now, this good news found to be true demonstrates that the glory is really that, that weighty, felt presence of God, also the self-expression of God to his creation. I really like that, that thought that, that, that God would, would express himself to us. And we see that in Jesus, especially as we unpack the Gospel of John. Uh, today we're going to see Jesus announce his glory through, through the love, love demonstrated for friends that testifies to more love, to the love that he has for us. But it also demonstrates not just that he has love for us, it demonstrates how he loves us. Now, to recap kind of where we've been as we've, as we've taken this jaunt, this really fast jaunt through the, the gospel of, of John, um, we've seen so far this revelation of glory. We've seen that, that Jesus, when, when people seek him, when, when we hear parts of the story, when we get a glimpse of what it is to feel this weighty presence of God, when we move towards God and begin to seek him, what we see is that he actually closes the distance to us. So he actually seeks us back. We also see that in his seeking of us, with the way that we experience him, we see that he, he, see that he will see beyond the brokenness, the masks that we wear that are a product of our lived experience with other people. He sees beyond those masks. We also see, and we have seen in this journey through John, we see him offer healing. Healing to shed those masks forever. And we see him point to himself as the final and full sacrifice that's going to bring reconciliation between creation and the creator. With those activities revealed, we're taking another step into glory with John 11 and John 12. Um, now, remember, right before these events, uh, pieces that we didn't cover in this series, but, but if you're f- tracking and, and following along in the Gospel of John, um, you've seen that, that in chapter 10, Jesus had been teaching in Jerusalem, and that teaching was not really received super well. The crowds of, of Jews and Jewish re- religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus, but more than wanting to just arrest him, they wanted to arrest and stone him. They wanted him to feel the weight of what he was teaching through execution by rolling stones on, on top of him. Jesus able to get away before they accomplished their violence against him. 
And in, in, in that, that thought, that brings us to a reality of the gospel. See, the, the message of Jesus, the glory of God, is not for informational purposes only. The message of God elicits a response in everyone that hears it. And this weighty felt presence of God we know as glory leads everyone to do one of two things. We either resist or we submit. Submission looks like our definition of faith. Submission is a turning outward, a turning away from self, turning towards sacrifice. Resistance, though, turns inward. Resistance turns inwards and and looks to self. Resistance looks like competitive survival. Resistance looks like building our own kingdom. In this reality, we find the choice that comes alongside with good news, with good news found to be true. We either apply the good news or we resist the good news. Today we see two stories that are related. One leads to another, but one leads to another in more than just chronology. We see a miracle with meaning far beyond the immediate and another view of the responses that come after feeling the glory of God Almighty. So with that in mind, join me in John 11, starting in verse 1. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. This, if you remember in chapter 10, this is where they want to stone him. His disciples objected, Rabbi, only a few days ago the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, There are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I'll go wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. There is so much going on here. Under the surface, from the difficulty of the disciples to understand what's happening to what is actually happening, there are several points for us to actually pull and spend a lot of time just in that passage. But we are focusing on the glory of God revealed through this scripture, which is something that Jesus points out is happening in this narrative. 
what's happening and what's about to happen is all about glory. In verse 4, Jesus says that the sickness will not end in death, and it, will ha- and it happened for the glory of God and for Jesus to receive glory. It happened, this sickness happens for God's glory and for Jesus to receive that glory as well. If you were to go over and read through that passage again, I would imagine that there are three things that, that tend to stand out. Death, love, and glory. This is what we see when we begin reading chapter 11 in the Gospel of John. But what we know, too, is that Jesus is about to reshape the way that we see death. He's about to reshape the way that we see love. He's about to reshape the way that we understand tragedy, loss, and suffering of this world. So if you are now or have ever suffered tragedy, death, or loss, this is how the risen Lord uses his felt weighty presence to answer the experience of this life. Jesus, through that weighty felt presence, is about to once more turn the world upside down. So the story about to be lived by the twelve, by Lazarus, by Mary and Martha, by all of the religious leaders are going to see this, The story about to be lived actually is not about death, even though that there's death in it. Stories of tragedy with this line of thinking means that stories of tragedy are not actually about tragedy at all, even though there's tragedy in them. The story is about how God expresses himself to us in the midst of the aftermath of death and tragedy and how love is the experienced result. See, Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to die. This is not, he, he, even though he says Lazarus isn't going to die, Jesus knows Lazarus is going to die. The first thing that he does when he hears about the illness of his friend is to operate in this relationship of his glory. Now, to understand really what's going on, we're going to have to to leave what we typically uh, utilize as as our our scripture. Um, We we need to step out of the NLT, the New Living Translation, for a second uh, to better capture the depth of what's going on. Now, I say that, and, and the reason that we use the NLT is the NLT is a really fine, functional translation of, of scripture. Uh, but it's not the best. The best actually is the one I'm reading at the time. But there, there's some that are, very, that, that are literal translations, and there's some that we have that are functional translations. We use the NLT because we find the NLT to be a very clear functional uh, translation uh, into our really crappy language of English to, to see what, what's going on. But the, the more literal translations sometimes can give us a picture in, in, in their literalness that, that we're going to use the, the ESV for, for a moment in, in, in seeing what's going on. Now, one reason why I, I spent a little bit of, of time unpacking that is because I want you to know, and th- this is something that's been through the, like the foundation of this church, um, whether it's a King James or, uh, or an NIV, I would have no problem reading any of them because this is, this is Scripture. Now, 
We use the NLT because, it, because we've chosen it, but, but this doesn't take away from, from any of those translations. We're using the, NS, the, the ESV um, to look at verses 5 to 6, where the NLT tells us, although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Functional translation of the Greek. But a more literal translation is helpful here. The ESV says, verse 5, now Jesus lo- loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two more days longer in the place where he was. The ESV helps us unpack this. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So he stayed where he was. What that means is that what he did was driven and motivated by love. His love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus led him to stay where he was. In other words, he let Lazarus die because he loved him. Letting Lazarus die was a supreme act of love. Love motivating his action makes no sense outside of the glory of God. Jesus knew what his delay would mean. He did it because he loved them. Knowing that his delay meant that Lazarus would die, he did it anyway because he loved them. His waiting to go to his friends would result in death. But this waiting motivated by how much he loved them. Jesus is waiting. I mean, think about it from this perspective. He's waiting for Lazarus to die. He's waiting for him to die as a demonstration of love. This is so upside down to our way of thinking that that it can be frustrating to grasp. It's hard to grasp, too, because we're talking, first, we're talking about a literal death. This isn't like a figurative death. This isn't like, like, you you know, oh, he's asleep. Oh, well, then what do we need to go there for? This is a literal death. And so you have to think about what death means. And if you've ever seen someone die, you know that, that, that death, while we all hope for it to be sort of a peaceful experience, it not always is a, is a peaceful experience. Lazarus died. He suffered a death that, that was likely painful and also was likely scary, not just for Lazarus, but for the people that were watching him die. This was a real tragedy. This real death led to real loss for his sisters. His sisters, they they went through what families go through when we have a death. They went through all of the stuff that happens, even the administrative logistics stuff that, that nobody wants to deal with, but we have to. They had a burial for him. They, they went through this. They, they even hired the, the, what, what it, you know, was culturally appropriate. They had the, the hired mourners that would come and wail and, and do the things that they, they, they would do. They, they did the funeral. They went through the whole process. This was a literal death, and it demonstrates how much Jesus loves Lazarus, and by extension, how much he loves us. The way that John is presenting this story is setting up for an understanding how the glory of God revealed in his love, how that love is seen in in the lives of all that will believe in Jesus, how this actually works. In other words, what we see happening to Lazarus 
is what we will see happen to each of us that respond to the weighty felt presence of God. Let's jump back in and get, get a little bit more of this story. Verse 17, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he, told, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, totally misunderstanding what was about to happen. He will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Glory is about to come. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into this world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher's here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus's grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. With Mary and Martha, we're seeing a very uh, rational response to tragedy. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell is going to be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? So they rolled the stone aside. Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Love is the motivation for Jesus to let Lazarus die. He is teaching all of us, not just all of those that were around watching this happen, not just the 12 that were there when he got the message, not just the people that sent the message to him. He is teaching all of us through this that he loves us. We have seen miraculous healings. 
healings in the presence of Jesus, but also healings from spoken words, from being more than 20 miles away and just saying, they're healed. Jesus can heal, but chooses love demonstrated by letting Lazarus die. The death of Lazarus reveals the glory of God because Jesus gives us what we need most, not what we want. What he gives is what we need most. What we're denied is what we want most. So how is this a story of God's weighty felt presence revealed in love? How is this love at all? This is Jesus offering a full and endless experience of his presence. In one of the works that, that John Piper did on, on this passage, he says that, that, that the human counterpart to the re- revelation of God's glory is believing, and the believing is coming to Jesus to be satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Let me say that again. The human counterpart to the revelation of God's glory is believing, and that believing is coming to Jesus to be satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Even though Lazarus dies, his sickness does not end in death. Verse 4, Jesus says his sickness will not end in death. It ends with Lazarus being in the presence of the living God. So the love of God for us is so deep that nothing we encounter in this life will end in death. What we pull from this story is nothing will end in death for those that respond to the glory of God, feeling that felt weighty presence and responding by believing. So now we see that as we seek him, he moves towards us. We see that he sees beyond the mask of brokenness that we wear. We see that he offers healing to that brokenness. And we also now see that he loves us so much that we are promised that nothing in this life will end in death. If we believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, does what he says that he does, nothing will end in death. Faith as a response to glory will defeat death. I don't know about you, but I really like winning. Faith as a response to glory defeats death. This love is encouragement that no tragedy of this life will endure, but the love of God endures. There is no tragedy, there is no loss, there is no situation in this life that will end in death. And we see this demonstrated through the love that Jesus had for us and for Lazarus, that he would allow him to die so he could teach us that this sickness will not end in death.
by extension, not just what we experience in this life. Our resurrection is revealed in the raising of Lazarus. The truth of this story is that Jesus overcomes the world. This is the very, the basic foundation of this story that Jesus overcomes the world. Tragedy and death are defeated by love. Nothing we experience will end in death when we place our faith in Jesus as a response to the presence of him in our lives. With that new reality, with what Jesus just did and demonstrated for us, we move to John chapter 12 and yet another transition in the glory revealed by the gospel of John. Now soon in this narrative, Jesus will enter Jerusalem and, be, and begin the last week before the glory of God is manifest by his death and resurrection. Before those events, we see his glory at, at dinner in the home of his friend Lazarus, the one that he just raised, alive and well after that demonstration of God's love. Love that comes through to those that have felt the presence of God and responded to that glory. Now we're in John 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. I do love that, that John put that in there, like we, we'd forget who that was. Like, hey, just in case you didn't remember, I mean, it did just happen, and it was a, kind of a big deal. Uh, this is the dude that got raised from the dead, just so you know. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume and made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It, it should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief, and since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole, for, stole some for himself. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you. You will not always have me. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. Another response to this glory of God. Oh my goodness, there's so much going on here again, but the theme that we can pull from this is the outcomes of these different responses to the weighty felt presence of God. We've got, we've got the responses of Martha, we have the response of Mary, the response of Judas, and then also we have this uh, sort of a, a response of the, the leading priests, the religious uh, protectors of their own wealth and way of life and power. The character of Martha in this story is demonstrated, it, it really is a faith response. It's a faith response to glory, uh, a response of service. And I think sometimes in the story, um, it, it's really easy to, uh, especially when we read 11 and 12 together, sometimes Martha gets a little bit of a bad rap, but what she's doing here is actually pretty cool. She's responding to the presence of God, doing the thing that she does best. 
She's doing the thing that she's equipped to do, the thing that she knows how to do, and she's demonstrating her love through hospitality. Martha responded to glory by serving glory. She loves Jesus and shows that love in a very practical way. She serves him by loving him through the work of her hands. This can't be overstated. This is amazing. This is awesome. This is a a faith response. She gives what she can, which means her public platform for love was serving Jesus with her hospitality. Think of how the hospitality of a person can provide for the needs of others so that they can, in turn, be who they were created to be. This, this ministry of hospitality cannot be overstated in terms of importance. This is, is making room for people to be who they were created to be. That sounds a lot like Jesus. And Martha is being a lot like Jesus. Martha's faith is evident in her service. Mary also, in another way, but not in like a hierarchy way, not in a higher way, but in her own way, expresses her love and faith in Jesus. And she does, throw, she does so through extravagance, sacrifice, and humility. The most precious thing that she possessed, she pours out on Jesus. Now, if you kind of take the, the, the median income for the city of Billings, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, and if you were to say that maybe you're able to save 10% of, of that income every year, which isn't what most Americans do, but that's a different message with a different intent at a different time. But if you're able to save about 10% of your income, it would take you just over a decade to, to save enough to buy this jar of perfume that, that, that Mary is, is, uh, is using. This is extravagant. You think about also um, her, her life just got turned upside down and then got turned upside down again, but she was faced with the reality. Do you know what happens to her if she loses Lazarus? This, her, in, in this culture, for, for a woman to not have a male benefactor, to not have a husband or a father or a brother, um, that, that is almost, in, in some cases, a, a, a tragedy worse than death because what she will have to do in order to just survive. That reality, that possibility just was face-to-face with her, that Lazar, with, with Lazarus dying. That makes this extravagant gift even more extravagant because she knows more than we do how much this gift is really worth. Mary did not stop to calculate the cost. She didn't look to see if she could afford to give this up. She didn't look to see like how much she had and like, well, maybe I'll just take some off the top and that'll be enough. She, she doesn't consider her needs. She took the most valuable thing that she had and she gave it all to Jesus. Her love is demonstrated by the reality that she will not experience regret. 
she's not going to regret giving, but also the way that she gives means that she will not have that regret of having more to give, but not having the experience to give it. She gives it all. Extravagance and sacrifice. Mary also demonstrates a faith response through humility. And really this humility is uh, maybe better described as a total lack of of self-consciousness. She anoints the feet of Jesus and then uses her hair to wipe his feet off. It, It would be an honor to allow someone to anoint your head. But Mary's reverence for Jesus, she can't anoint his head, she anoints his feet. After anointing his feet, she breaks cultural norms even further in a world that that no respectable woman would ever be in public with her hair unbound. In fact, when a woman was married in this culture... Her hair was put up and would never again be seen in public. To have your hair down in public was the sign of a woman with loose morals. And Mary does not care. She cares nothing for cultural nonsense. The cultural jack wagonry that says that that the way that you wear your hair reflects your morality She rejects all of that. Mary loved Jesus so much that she acted without concern for what others would think. The weighty felt presence of God led her to respond in a way that testified to her love of Jesus. And the love, this is awesome, and I love this, and I've missed it every time I have read this story until preparing for this. The love filled the house with the fragrance of her love. Can you imagine being there and actually experiencing the love that, that, that Mary had, this response in faith, so powerful that that fragrance fills the, the house. The fragrance of her love Now we can contrast that a little bit with the the character of Judas, who reveals a response to the glory of God, one we spoke about last week at length, one uh, when we examined how glory is resisted. Judas's main concern, I mean, he's a liar. His main concern was not the poor. The poor was his vehicle. His main concern was his own well-being. Judas is locked in competitive survival. Judas is locked in building his own kingdom. His his response to the glory of God is to turn inward. He's been entrusted with carrying the money for Jesus and this group of disciples, um, and he's been embezzling the crap out of this money for a long time. We see in the extravagance of Mary's action that, that he, what he sees is a loss of wealth. He sees not the loss of her wealth. He sees the loss of his potential wealth. 
The problem here is also, though, that he's making a valid point that's supported by Scripture in so many other ways that, that this would be a means to serve others, but what he's really getting at is, is he needed means to actually serve his idolatry. The, the note that, that John makes in this narrative about Judas's character makes it easier to see how the enemy got to him. When we remember that we don't war against flesh and blood, and we ask the question of what, what actually, what was the, the, the route to the heart of Judas? What we see here is that habitual, unrepentant sin reveals where our heart truly is. For Judas, where his heart truly was, was his own competitive survival and kingdom building. Being in the presence of Jesus, and remember, as one of the twelve, he wasn't just in the presence of Jesus, he was in the presence of Jesus. He had the training. He saw what the other twelve saw. He experienced that weighty, felt presence of God. He saw the glory. It did not lead to love as it did for Mary and Martha. It led to a hardening of self-interest and competitive survival. We see how easy culture can warp the love of God. In the place of service and unsurpassed loveliness, Judas can only see extravagant waste. He demonstrates that what is inside of us becomes the lens of how we see and treat other people. What is inside of us becomes the lens for how we see and treat other people. If it's the glory of God inside of us, the way that the lens that we utilize to see other people is the eyes of the risen king. People will see something as they experience us. They will see either the glory of God or they'll see the glory of self. And Judas shows the glory of self. Now also, the leading priests, the religious leaders, they show their response to feeling the presence of God. They want to kill Jesus, but more than just that, they want to kill Lazarus too. Why kill Lazarus? Because he's evidence of glory. They need to get rid of the evidence. In order to maintain their own place, they need to destroy the evidence of the love of the living God. In William Barclay's commentary on this passage, he comments that a man has come to, to a, a story, uh, he has come to a sorry pass when he is afraid of the truth and sets his personal prestige and profit before the truth. A man has come to a sorry pass when he is afraid of the truth and sets his personal prestige and profit before the truth. And so we see in Judas and the religious leaders the product of resistance to the, well, the felt weighty presence of God but in Mary and Martha we see a response to understanding what love is a response to understanding the glory of God means that this sickness will not end in death 
as we close this and we turn back to worship, we recognize that the glory of God is real for us, but also is real through us. We know that nothing experienced in this life will end in death if we place our faith in Jesus. Recognizing what he, he has done for us, our love for him will be a testimony to others. I leave you with this. Psalm 18, 1 through 19. I love you, Lord. You are my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me. For my place of safety, I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise, and he saved me from my enemies. The ropes of death entangled me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. Death laid a trap in my path. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. He heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. I love this part so much. Then the earth quaked and trembled. We just woke up our father. Not that he was asleep, but you get what I mean. The foundations of the mountains shook and they quaked because of his anger. Smoke poured from his nostrils. Fierce flames leapt from his mouth. Glowing coals blazed forth from him. He opened the heavens and came down. Dark storm clouds were beneath his feet. Mounted on a mighty angelic being, he flew Soaring on the wings of the wind, he shrouded himself in darkness, veiling his approach with dark rain clouds. Thick clouds shielded the brightness around him and rained down hail and burning coals. The Lord thundered from heaven. His voice of the Most High resounded amid the hail and the burning coals. He shot his arrows and scattered his enemies. Great bolts of lightning flashed, and they were confused. Then at your command, O Lord, at the blast of your breath, the bottom of the sea could be seen, and the foundations of the earth were laid bare. He reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of the deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemies, from those who hated me and were too strong for me. They attacked me at a moment when I was in distress, but the Lord supported me. He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. Amen.